So what if the teacher didn't show up? <laughs> All right. Well, there's a whole lot more signed up than are here, but uh, I think they'll filter in. So let's begin our time with prayer. Lord God, I thank you for our time together. I pray for your Holy Spirit to be the active teacher in our hearts, helping us to see truth in new and fresh ways and, and ways that we can uh, make application to our lives. So God, thank you for each person here. We give ourselves now to you, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, we are going to be talking about heart prayer, which is <clears throat> excuse me, a tool that uh, we use at Crossroads Counseling of the Rockies in Buena Vista, Colorado. <clears throat> um, our program has existed for 20 years now, almost 20, um, in the little town of, of Buena Vista, Colorado, where we are um, underneath the, the highest concentration of 14,000-foot peaks in North America, actually, in our little valley. And so Mount Princeton is right in front of us. It's a gorgeous place to, to live and, and to do our work. But uh, we do intensive counseling, and people literally come from all over the country, from every state except for two have been represented in six or seven foreign countries as well. So um, heart prayer is an integral part of what we do at Crossroads, and, and I, don't know that, I don't know that I would want to do it any other way these days. Um, <clears throat> so, we're going to be talking about using heart prayer in counseling, and um, I like to use the illustration of a tornado when I talk about heart prayer because um, I grew up in Michigan where there were tornado seasons, and when there was a tornado in the area, um, there would be um, a siren that would be that would sound that was to, that was indicating for you to go to the basement of, of uh, your house and wait out the storm. So let's say that a tornado is coming towards your house. You just don't know how close it's going to get. And um, sure enough, there's wind and noise and you don't know what's happening. And so then when it all calms, you go upstairs. And tornadoes are weird because they can do a significant amount of damage over here and almost nothing over here, kind of like this house where half the house is missing. <laughs> Um, so you come upstairs and you go, wait a minute, I didn't do that, I didn't cause that, why should I have to fix what I didn't break, what I, I'm not, I shouldn't have to be responsible for that. And so you decide, I'm just going to put up a, a wall where the damage ends and I'm just going to live out of the healthy part of the house. And uh, meanwhile, you wait for somebody to come along and, and fix the rest of the house for you, the part that's been broken. Well, how long are you going to wait? <laughs> Probably a very long time. Meanwhile, you're living at a half a house. And the next tornado that comes along in the form of a parent or a bully or an abuser of some kind, um, the healthy part of your house just keeps getting smaller and smaller. If you compare that to your heart, the size of the healthy heart that you still have left after the abuse and, and hurt and pain that offenders have caused you 
the part of your heart that feels healthy just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Um, so that's kind of the, the illustration I like to use. And so if, you, if you're going to <clears throat> want to live out of all of your house, first thing you need to do is to accept that the damaged parts are mine as well as the healthy parts. And so you take ownership of all of it. And then you can invite the insurance adjuster to come over and help you to survey the damage. And he's going to point out damage you didn't even see because he's an expert at seeing damage. And he's probably going to give you the assurance of we've got the resources available to rebuild. Now, I would suggest that the Holy Spirit is your insurance adjuster. And as he walks through the damaged places of your heart, he's going to give you the assurance of this is not going to be too hard to rebuild. In fact, I think he's going to say something to the effect of what I want what I want in rebuilding is a more magnificent structure than what was there before. I want people to take notice. I want people to be asking you questions, which gives you an opportunity for testimony. Um, a testimony is virtually always about um, either I screwed up in my own life and did my own damage or somebody did damage toward me. But in either case, a testimony is about, let me tell you what happened when Jesus got a hold of those places, what he did to, to heal my heart. Um, George MacDonald is quoted by C.S. Lewis um, fairly often. And uh, an illustration that George MacDonald has, if I can find my glasses. <clears throat> George MacDonald says this, imagine you're, uh-oh. I'm in a little trouble with this connection. There we go. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew, you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, uh, putting an extra floor on there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to live, it, live in it himself. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, um, God is not merely mending, not simply restoring a status quo. Um, he said, redeemed humanity is, is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity would have been. The greater the, the sin, the greater the mercy, the, greater the, the deeper the death, the brighter the rebirth. So let me give you another illustration in terms of what happens to us in, as we get hurt. Let's say that you're out in the hallway with a bad back and you're trying to, get, uh, trying to get it worked out and loosen it up, and so you're swinging your elbows back and forth. And I don't know you're doing that, so I walk around the corner, and just as I walk around the corner, your elbow hits me right smack dab in the nose, breaks my nose, it's hurting, bleeding, I mean... It's badly broken, and immediately, knowing how, how wonderful and kind you are, you want to take ownership. 
You want to say, I'm sorry, I apologize, I repent of my behavior, and um, I, want your, I want to ask your forgiveness. And so you ask my forgiveness, and being the wonderful Christian man that I am, I offer forgiveness. And, and as, the, as soon as the words, I forgive you, pass my lips, my nose straightens out, stops hurting, stops bleeding, praise the Lord, I'm healed. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> my nose is just as broken after I utter the words, I forgive you, as before. In other words, forgiveness does not bring automatic healing. And a lot of times we get um, either a direct or indirect message that if I forgive somebody, it should imme immediately bring healing to me. And that's not the case. Um, so I need, if I want my nose to be healed, I need to take it to the doctor. And, um, and as he resets it, it's not going to be instantaneously healed then either. It's going to be a process, a process of healing that takes place over time. And that's generally what God does. He can, he can do miraculous healing. And we all pray for that when we have an injury of some kind or a cancer or some other a disease or something. But more often, especially in terms of heart issues, God does it as a process of, of your healing and recovery. Um, <clears throat> now, you may feel so guilty for having done that to my nose that you may go, look, I want to take full responsibility for my behavior, so I'm the one who broke your nose, so here, let me fix it for you. And you yank it around. <laughs> I mean... You're probably going to break it worse, make it hurt more, because you're not a doctor. You don't know how to heal a broken nose. And the reason I bring that up is, I think, a really important point, and that is the one who hurt you has no ability to fix you. The one who hurt you has no ability to heal you. They can say they're sorry. That makes you feel better a little bit. They can do restitution, maybe, in some cases, and that may make you feel better, but the healing of a heart is, is a specialty that only the great physician can accomplish. There is only one great physician. So we need to take the brokenness of our hearts to the one who can heal it. Now, one other piece of that uh, illustration, if I call up the doctor and say, um, I've got this really badly broken nose, but I've got a really busy schedule today, so could you just heal me over the phone? <laughs> He's going to laugh and say, no, I have to be present with you. Now, the reason I bring that up is I think we tend to do that as Christians sometimes of, with prayers like, God, if any, anything bad has ever happened to me, would you just fix it? Would you just heal me of all of that? And I think God's message is basically the same. No, I want to be present with you. I want to join you in the midst of. So meeting us in the wounds is very important. Now, when you're significantly hurt by somebody, your heart probably feels a bit like a desert place. It feels empty and lonely and, and uh, lifeless at times. Um, but that's where God loves to meet us. Um, but we dwell in the parched places of the desert, as Jeremiah says, but that's where God loves to meet us because in Hosea he says, um, therefore I'm now going to allure her, I will lead her into the desert or the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, literally speak to her heart. There I will give, give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. 
Anybody know what the word acre refers to? It refers to trouble. And when, if you translate it that way, I will make your valley of trouble, your valley of woundedness, your valley of hurt, your valley of conflict or pain, I will make that a door of hope. And consistently, as folks go through the process of, of having the healing take place at Crossroads, there's a whole new level of hope that develops very, very automatically almost. So um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about doing heart prayer. And uh, so all of us experience life situations in which we get wounded. Um, and there's three main kind of wounds that I like to emphasize in, in talking about this. And we're just going to talk about some of the structures of heart prayer, as, as we call it. Um, First kind of wound, and it kind of parallels the uh, trauma typology that uh, if you ever do any trauma counseling or uh, reading about that, type A trauma is what didn't happen to me that should have happened to me. What I needed but I didn't get. Um, those would be the wounds of what I call the wounds of omission or the wounds of neglect. Um, I can't remember um, my father ever telling me he loved me. I can't, uh, I, I think of myself on the playground, I was always on the outside looking in. I didn't feel like I belonged. Um, I didn't ever feel comforted by anybody. I had nobody to talk to when I was growing up. Things I missed out on that I needed. And we all have core longings and needs, and when those needs aren't met, there's holes in our hearts and those create wounds. Second kind of wound, is type B trauma, and that's what did happen to me that shouldn't have happened to me. What I didn't need, but I did get. Um, I, can't, I, got, I got beaten by my father. I was molested. I was bullied on the playground. I, I got humiliated by a teacher. There's a lot of things that happened to us that should never have happened to us. And those create wounds, obviously. Third kind of wound is, is what would be more called the, the cumulative kind of wounds. Um, if one time in your life you can remember your father being critical of, your, of how you did a job, you probably wouldn't even remember it. But if that was a regular occurrence, every time you did a job, he criticized you and did it over or made you do it over a few times and was perfectionistic, if, if you didn't feel like you could do anything right or you couldn't please him, that would over time create those cumulative uh, kind of wounds. And, my friend Terry Wardle calls it the Chinese water torture of woundedness. A few drops on the forehead don't matter, but if they keep happening day after day after week after month, it's going to really affect you and, and uh, cause you to go crazy, basically. Um, so those main kind of wounds, but regardless of how you were wounded, anybody been wounded in any one of those three ways? <laughs> Let's just see how many liars we have today. <laughs> We've all been wounded and probably have all experienced all three of those in one, one extent or another. But when you're wounded, that's where the enemy gains access. I would suggest that the enemy's access into your heart primarily comes through your woundedness because his lies are his interpretation of why you are wounded. The reason why that happened to you is. The reason why your father never pays any attention to you is you don't matter, he doesn't love you, 
and you buy the lie because it makes sense. And so you accept that as truth, and that develops into false beliefs. And false beliefs are just taking all the lies I've bought into and now trying to organize it and make, make sense of it. And so you're, um, it becomes the grid of understanding or the filter of understanding. And so as, you're, as you are uh, trying to figure out who you are and what your place in your family is and what life is about and whose others are and so on, that's where your beliefs are now um, informing all of that. And over time, some of those false beliefs are going to turn into strongholds. And my definition of a stronghold is such a deeply held false belief that even the truth of God doesn't make a difference. Let me say that again. A stronghold is such a deeply held false belief that even the truth of God doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make the truth of God any less true, just doesn't seem to be true for me. Somehow I'm exempt from what I know theologically to be true and what I know the Bible says and so on. And so out of the, the false beliefs and strongholds, we now start developing vows, vows of self-protection. How am I going to stay safe? How am I going to protect myself from further wounding? And so I'll shut down. I won't need anybody. Um, it's kind of like the orphanage story of uh, the, the babies are all crying and there's not enough help. And, Eventually, the baby stops crying, not because he has any less need, but because he gives up. And I think we do that as human beings sometimes. We, we still have the needs, but we eventually decide, I won't need anybody. I'll just get it myself. I'll do it myself. So vows of independence and self-sufficiency, vows of, of I'll never cry again, or I won't, I, I won't let anybody, uh, I won't trust anybody. There's lots of vows that we make. Then they're generally vows of self-protection or vows of safety. And out of that, we develop the false self. Now, that's a, pretty, that's a term that's fairly common in counseling, uh, the, the development of a false self. Um, and it's really not a very accurate term because it's not so much a false self as a partial self. It's the best of me. It's, it's a better version of me, more lovable, more acceptable, more impressive, whatever I need it to be. And so I, it's what I now call the highlight reel self. I like to play on words there. Uh, if you're creating a highlight reel for a news story, um, you're only going to use the film that supports your story, that you wanna, the way you want to spin it. Um, there's a lot of film on the ground. <laughs> we do that with our lives. We try to project the best parts of us, the best of. And, and there's parts of us we don't want anybody to know. Um, Phil um, Maginelli uh, yesterday morning talked about our addiction to significance. I would suggest this is where it comes in. We are longing to feel significant and so we try to put the best parts of us together to project the best image of us that we can to be significant and, to, and that's the part that we want to be known. I would part company with Phil just a little bit, and I don't think we're saying anything different. We don't have an addiction to being known. That's the only part of us we want to be known. That's what we're addicted to. The parts of us that we, that we don't want people to know, we're scared to death of being known. And I think that's, a, that's something that is common to probably mo most people rather than just some. And that is 
if people, the, the feeling that if people knew all of me, if they knew everything about me, they couldn't possibly love me. So I have to keep parts of me hidden, parts of me secret. I have to bury parts of myself. And I would suggest to you, those parts of you are the parts that got wounded. And a wound denied never heals, as John Eldridge talks about. Um, and so we'll never really experience deep healing unless we are addressing those wounded parts of us. Um, so let me give you an illustration of, of what I'm talking about here, this, of this paradigm. Uh, there was a, a man at Crossroads who, when he was eight years old, his parents got divorced. First lie he bought in, into was it was his fault. He should have been a better kid. He shouldn't have been so much trouble and so on. But worse than that, his mother is now a single parent. And she is, she is working a, a couple of jobs, I think, and, and uh, trying to take care of him. And she's overwhelmed and stressed out. And some, at one point, she gets to the end of her rope, and she literally puts him in a car and drops him off to an orphanage. Didn't even go in with him. Just tell, open the car door and said, tell the nuns you need a place to stay. Well, as he's walking up the front steps of the orphanage, what lies do you think the enemy is successfully getting him to believe? Not worth it, not wanted, unlovable, all of those things and more. And those, those lies he bought into turned into false beliefs because his mother didn't pick him up the next day, or week, or month, or year. She left him there. She literally abandoned him. He grew up in the orphanage for 10 years. And over the course of those 10 years, those lies and false beliefs turned into some major strongholds of, I'm unlovable, I'm unwanted, um, I'm, I'm worthless, um, nobody will ever love the real me. And so out of that, he developed vows of nobody's, nobody's ever going to know the real me. That was one vow that he, he kept very strongly. And the other vow that, was, that he was very much aware of doing was, I'm not going to let this hold me down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes to be successful. And so he had this drivenness about him, and um, he was talented. He, had, he was an athlete, uh, pretty athletic. He was a good student. He... He was popular among the other kids, and so he built a pretty good life for himself, a good persona that was likable and, and was successful, and, and he graduated from high school and went to college. He had become a Christian along the way, and as he was growing in his faith in college, he started to feel the call of God on his life to become a pastor. Funny thing, right? Um, and as he was thinking about becoming a pastor, he thought to himself, what do pastors look like? What do they act like? What do they talk like? What do I need to know? And so he went to seminary and studied hard and learned how to do um, Greek and Hebrew and, and um, uh, did all the um, pastor classes of, of how, to, how to pastor a church and how to preach. And, and by the time he um, graduated, he had a pretty good pastor persona going for him. He was pretty impressive, and, um, and so as, as, he, um, as he graduated from seminary, he started pastoring churches, and by the time he got to Crossroads, he was a senior pastor of a pretty large church and was very successful in a lot of, different, a lot of ways, at least ostensibly, because he 
was well liked, he preached well, he did all the things that he needed to do, but he was having an anxiety uh, issue when he got to crossroads. He was burned out and feeling, um, having an anxiety disorder, basically. And uh, so his anxiety was mostly about every time he said, just about every Sunday as he was getting up to preach, he'd be gripped with a great deal of fear and anxiety. And it was all about one of these days, one of these days, these people are going to find me out. And when they do, they're going to put me in another car and drop me off to another orphanage, basically. And so he, was, he could stand in front of the church, preach with great passion and conviction, the love of God for all people, unconditionally. He believed it for everyone, except for him. Somehow he was exempt from what he knew was true for everybody else. That's a great example of a stronghold. We'll come back to his story in a little bit, but heart prayer is really just very simply inviting Jesus to join you in your wounded places, to, to, invite, you, to invite him to join you in your wound or your pain. Um, now, as you grow up, I, li- I like to say it this way at Crossroads, I think little kids are great observers and lousy historians. <laughs> They're great observers but lousy historians, meaning they saw what happened, they experienced what happened, ex- but they didn't know what it meant. And they almost always get it wrong. They have a false interpretation, and guess who give- gives them help in misunderstanding what happened to them? That's where the enemy is the most deceptive. So let me emphasize a couple things as we start talking about heart prayer. Um, Temporal versus eternal. We all grow up being chronologically, uh, chronologically growing up from birth until today. And we're all now living in what we call today. None of us can live in yesterday. None of us can live in tomorrow. We're bound by time and space. Um, and that's, that's reflected in the way we tend to pray, too. God, would you bless me today? Would you bless my family today? Would you help me with my job today? And um, would you prepare me for tomorrow? There's, but we're very much oriented into what we call today. We are temporal beings, but God is not. He's eternal. And part of what it means for God to be eternal is that he is not only eternally future, He's also eternally past. And I think that's powerful because God is outside of time. He's not bound by time and space in any way. And so when, when he looks at your life, how much of your life does he see in present tense? All of it. He knows all of your days before one of them came to be, as Psalm 139 talks about. So he sees all of your life. And what restricts him from only being able to help you and respond to your prayers today? What restricts God from being able to enter into time at any time he chooses? Um, Which means he can meet you as an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a five-year-old or whatever year old you were wounded. And he could, because not only was he there when it happened, he's there right now. He can enter into that time and space anytime he chooses. Now, he's not going to change what happened, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But 
that idea of God being eternal is so powerful and important, I think. Um, and so we need to uh, ask God, would you show me that you were there? Most of us didn't know God uh, when we were most wounded. And that's so often the case is, is when it happened, I hadn't even gotten saved yet. Well, the fact that you didn't know God doesn't mean he didn't know you. And he loved you as much then as he loves you today. And so he was there, is there, loves you, and wants to help you in that place. Um, so to do this heart prayer time revolve, uh, involves the use of your imagination. Now, I, I would guess that some of you, maybe many of you, um, grew up in, in churches where imagination was discouraged. You didn't really, you were encouraged not to use your imagination very much because it's the, it's the devil's workshop, it's fantasy, it's unreality, um, waste of time kind of thing, you're daydreaming, whatever. Um, and that can happen. And um, in the wrong hands, your imagination can be very destructive. Pornography is a good example of that. But in the right hands, it can be used in a powerful way. Um, now, if you think about it, imagination, um, I think, my opinion, I think imagination is one of the most important and powerful gifts God's given to us. Um, if you read the Bible, there's, it's full of imagery. If you think about Psalm 23, it doesn't say, I'm your God and I'm going to protect you. It says, the Lord's my shepherd. He's going, to let in, he's going to lead me to lay down in green pastures, these lush pastures, and lead me beside still waters. And he's going to, he's going to prepare a table, and he's going to lead me through this valley of the shadow of death. And just in that one Psalm, there's tons of imagery but if you look through Psalms, if you, he's my rock, he's my shield, he hides me like a mother chick with her, with her uh, mother hen with her chicks. Um, and, and, and so there's these pictures of protection. Jesus taught in parables largely because he knew the power of story. He knew that, that if he just gave propositional truth, black and white truth, everybody might be sleeping by the time he was done. I mean... Pastors use illustrations and examples because they know the power of story. When people can identify with a story, it, then the truth starts to really touch them at a heart level instead of just intellectually. Um, Jesus says, picture this or imagine this. A farmer goes out to his field and he sows some seed and some falls in hard ground and some on this, this rocky soil and some in the, in the weeds and, and some in really good soil. And, and you get the picture and you start to understand truth in a deeper way. So imagination is powerful and, and can be very, very helpful. In fact, here's a really important point. You can't remember anything without using your imagination. You ever thought of that? You can't remember anything without the use of your imagination. So if you picture the birth of a child or a special event that took place, or an award that you got, or a dinner that you experienced with some friends, you can't remember it without 
using your imagination. If you take the time, close your eyes and take your time, you can literally picture that environment, who was there, what was happening. You might even have some familiar smells going on in, in, and, and your brain can do a lot of that kind of stuff. You can re-experience a past event. Um, if you ever walk in, this happens to me almost every time I walk into a, um, an elementary school. I think all, ele all elementary schools smell exactly the same. <laughs> it's a combination of cleaning fluid of some kind and bananas or something. But it, it's a very familiar smell. And when I walk into one of those, I, I start remembering things that happened to me when I was in elementary school and teachers I had that I've never, I haven't thought of for 10 years kind of thing. And so imagination is powerful. Now, a scalpel can be used to do important surgery, to cut out a tumor and so on and save somebody's life maybe. Now, the same scalpel could be used to cut somebody's throat open and kill them. So is a scalpel a good thing or a bad thing? It all depends. It depends on who's using it for what purpose, exactly. Who's using it for what purpose? And I think that's really important with heart prayer because if we aren't asking God to take over our imagination and be in control of it, the enemy can use it to, to uh, uh, get us off track and to do destructive things. Um, so, as I start out doing heart prayer with people, I generally um, pray and ask God to sanctify our imagination so that um, it's in his hands for his purposes to accomplish what he wants to during this time. Now, it's not what happened to you that made the difference, but rather what you believed about what happened to you. So that's why God isn't going to change anything that took place in your life. He's not going to change any, he's not going to, we're not doing revisionism when we do heart prayer. I'm going to picture Jesus walking up the front steps of the orphanage and, and he's, going to, he's going to whistle to my mother to turn the car around and I jump back in the car, we drive off and I didn't have to go through the orphanage experience, now I feel so much better. Well, that's not what happened. God's not going to heal you with a lie. So he's not going to unmolest you or unbeat you up or unreject you. He doesn't have to because it wasn't the action. It wasn't what happened to you that made the difference, but rather what it meant to you. And that is really where the pain is. If you were severely beaten by your father one time, as you remember it today, you're, you don't have any physical pain, but what's still painful about that memory probably is he didn't love me, he rejected me, he, he was embarrassed about me, he didn't think I was a good kid, he, in fact, he, he thought I was an idiot, I mean, whatever. But what I believed about it is what still uh, keeps the pain alive. So we need to be asking God, would you, would you show me the truth? And so um, sometimes I refer to heart prayers being as getting your history straight. Uh, if you got it wrong to begin with, you're going to continue to get it wrong until you get it right. And so until there's a course correction, um, you're going to continue to believe what you did. This is what Gregory Boyd says. Um, the, the puzzle to be resolved, um, the, the puzzle is not to be resolved by distinguishing between the way God sees us and the way we actually are 
but by distinguishing between the way we actually are in Christ and the way we have experienced ourselves. You see the difference? Let me say that again. The puzzle is not to be resolved by distinguishing between the way God sees us and the way we actually are, but by distinguishing between the the way we actually are in Christ and the way we, ex- we have experienced ourselves. Uh, sometimes I hear people say, well, God looks past me and sees Jesus, and that's why he loves me. No, he doesn't look past me. He sees me, and he loves me. He has forgiven me, and he has wiped me clean, and, and so it's not a matter of he's embarrassed about me, but he sees Jesus, and so, okay, I'll give you credit. Um, and sometimes that's what, it's like, the way God sees the real me isn't really good enough, and so he has to see Jesus. No, he sees who he actually recreated us to be in Christ Jesus. He paid the big price for that. And so accepting who he's made us to be and living out of that and challenging our former experience of ourselves is really what it's about then. So let's go back to our uh, um, paradigm when we are wounded, the enemy speaks truth. <laughs> it has a small T and quotes around it, obviously, but so many people, as they're looking at the lies and false belief of their life, they, I hear the response a lot of times of, that doesn't seem like it's not true. It feels like it's true, that I am unlovable, that I am ugly, that I'm, I am, and, and so we continue to buy the lies because the enemy is so good at deceiving us into believing it. Um, and he starts to give us the message of, you're stuck with this, you can't undo it, and so this is your reality, you're going to have to live with the rest of your life, and so you're stuck with it. And he says, this is going to define your life too. The only way you're going to find life now uh, is, is through a bottle or through successes or, or through um, being the life of the party or whatever, but you're going to have to try to redefine life somehow and he says, safety's job one, and it's your job to, to keep yourself safe. And so our strategies of doing life are all about safety. Now, in another one of my teachings, um, I talk about judgment. And the word judgment, those of you who are our pastors probably know that the word judgment comes from the Greek word krino, which means to separate. And God is love, as 1 John talks about. God is love, and so he's all about the heart, all about connection, all about um, relationship. Well, the enemy, blinding flash of the obvious, is not love. He hates love. He's against relationship, right? And so his central strategy, he's not very original, he's just, he's just effective, um, His central strategy is to disconnect us. Disconnect us from relationship, disconnect us from our own hearts, disconnect us from love, and and to stimulate the fears that are going to put up our walls of self-protection. And those walls keep us safe to some degree, but they prevent us from loving effectively. Um, To the extent that you judge, you cannot love, Gregory Boyd talks about. So 
In doing heart prayer, we're asking God, would you help me to deal with my own vows of self-protection, my own ways of trying to stay safe? And then the enemy's most pernicious lie is about our identity. He's getting us to believe that everything that's happened to us, especially our woundedness, now defines us. And we are permanently hopeless, permanently shameful, permanently damaged, whatever, and and so why would anybody want to know the real you? That's why you need to create the false self, to protect yourself from being known. Um, well, as, as you meet Jesus in those wounds, he can speak his truth. And as he meets you in that place, he can help you to challenge and renounce the lies and false beliefs that you've bought into and can start to then engage the truth in ways that brings freedom. Now, as he, speaks, as he speaks his truth, he also says, by the way, I've got a new reality for you because you are, one of the lies you've bought about reality is you have to be able to figure out everything by itself. And so often, when I'm looking at a wound that happened to me, I'm going, why did this happen? Why would God have let this happen? And you try to analyze it and figure it out, and the more you look at it and the closer you look at it, the less it makes sense, really. It's like taking an individual piece of a jigsaw puzzle, trying to figure out why is it shaped this way and why are these dots of color on here? The closer you look at it, the less sense it makes. It's confusing. It will only make sense when that piece is placed in the larger picture, right? And once it is, you can see exactly why it's shaped that way, and now those dots of color are part of a dog's ear or a hubcap or a part of a house or I mean you start to see in, in context of what it's really representing and I would suggest to you the events of our life are like that there are no extra pieces in the puzzle box there are no missing pieces so every piece counts and every there is not a single thing that has ever happened to you that God is scratching his head over and go, that one got past me, sorry. <laughs> if it happened to you, God can use it. Even things that God, the enemy intended to destroy you with, God says, you just played into my hands, and so let me show you where that piece is going to be placed in the larger story. So we need to have the faith that God can show us a new reality. <clears throat> Think about the Joseph story that way. If you try to analyze the, the Joseph story by looking at every, every event of his life and isolate those events, why would they destroy this beautiful coat? This is really a nice coat. Why would they throw him into the pit? Why would they sell him into slavery? Why would they, he be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? Why would he be thrown in prison and forgotten for years? None of that really makes sense by themselves. But woven together as a story, it now becomes powerful. And by the time Joseph's brothers show up in Egypt, his message to them is, you know what, you guys didn't send me here. It wasn't you, it was God. God sent me before you to preserve life. And when his brothers show up a second time, he's basically saying, I, you know, I'm not in denial. I'm not pretending you guys didn't really mean it, and so it's okay. You guys meant it. You meant it for evil, but... God had a larger story. He had a purpose for what I went through, and I'm submitting it. I'm submitting to it. And because 
Because of Joseph's willingness to let God have every piece of that puzzle, um, the nation of Israel was preserved. The line of David was preserved. Jesus could be born according to prophecy. And we all benefit from that. So who knows how God is weaving the pieces of your life together into a story that is going to have impact in many other lives than your own. Um, so that's the reality that we can now experience. And then he also says, life comes through me only. He who has the Son has life. As 1 John says, this is the record God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then uh, in uh, Romans 5, verse 10, talks about being reconciled to God through the death of his Son. And, um, and then in the second part of the verse, it says, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved shall be saved by his life. The word saved in that verse could be translated shall be delivered by his life, made whole by his life, healed by his life. His life in us is really what brings the healing. So meeting him in our hearts, meeting in those places of woundedness is why that his life is going to do that. And then he also says, by the way, you've gotten it wrong about safety. <laughs> you've bought into the world's definition. The world's definition of safety is if I play by all the rules, if I do everything right, if I don't take any risks, I can play it safe and I'll feel safe. Um, last night, uh, Brad Williams was talking about being safe and that God is not safe. I would take exception to that. And, and I don't think we're saying the different things either because what I think what he was saying is God is not safe by our standards. We're not, he doesn't play into the world's definition of safety. In fact, using the world's definition of safety was the Apostle Paul safer prior to his conversion or after? <laughs> Way safer before. We had a good life going for him. Safe, well-respected, well-educated. I mean... Safe. After his conversion, shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, imprisonments. I mean, talk about an unsafe life. Um, in one place he said, we thought we were goners. We were in so much trouble, we thought we were going to perish. Um, but in Philippians he says, I've had every life situation, every life circumstance I can think of, good and bad, and I've learned. Underscore the word learned. I can be content in whatever state I'm in. I think he would say I can be safe in any circumstance that I'm in. And we need to learn that kind of safety, I think, because God is the most safe person there is. Um, Corey Tenboom used to say, she went through the concentration camp experience, if you, if you aren't aware. But, um, she's, she used to say that there are there are no ifs in God's world and no places that are safer than any other places. In the center of his will is our only safety. Let us always know it. Um, Oswald Chambers said it this way. He said, he said, the experience the psalmist speaks of, we will not fear even though the mountains are thrown into the sea and so on of Psalm 46 verse 2 he said, that experience will be ours 
once we are grounded on the truth of the reality of God's presence, not just simple, a simple awareness of it, but an, an understanding of the reality of it, then we will exclaim, he has always been there all the time. And I think that's really cool because in, in, uh, in Crossroads, when people go through this heart prayer experience and as they are getting the healing over the course of the week or two weeks that they're there, um, one of the things that I hear consistently is, I now am realizing there has not been a moment of my life where Jesus wasn't there. And experiencing his presence makes me feel safe. I have counseled people through horrific experiences and when they experience Jesus in the midst of, there's a new sense of safety and protection. And a lot of times it's giving up their own vows of self-protection and allowing God to have control of those areas and letting him have the reins of control and, and letting him be their, uh, the head of security for them. Um, let me give you one other illustration of safety that I think is powerful. And that's um, the story of Elisha and his servant in, in Second, King, Second Kings chapter 6, <coughs> in which um, the servant goes outside the tent in the morning and panics. I mean, he's, he says, we're doomed. We're surrounded by the enemy. This is, well, is going to be horrible. And he goes back in and tells, tells Elisha, and Elisha says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are way more than those who are with them. Can you imagine the servant, humanly speaking, hearing those words? What? <laughs> Look. And then Elisha says, or prays to God, would you open the eyes of my servant? Let him see the reality. And as he goes outside the tent, he sees the angel armies of God, the chariots of fire surrounding the enemy. They're blinded and the rest of the story. But they are kept safe in the midst of the worst kind of, of experience. Um, there's, another, there's a psalm that uh, I just want to touch on as well. Psalm 31, 19 to 21, from the New International Reader's Version, says, You have stored up so many good things. You give them to people who run to you for safety. They are safe because you are with them. You're, they're safe because you are with them. In other words, the presence of God keeps us safe. The word Irene, um, some of you may know, is the Greek word for peace. Um, and uh, I know it's not pronounced Irene, but it is for me the rest of my life. Since I taught this one time in, in New Jersey at a church um, that had been recently um, affected by the tornado, Irene. <laughs> I didn't know that, that, I mean, I hadn't put it together. And so I was teaching, I got to this slide, and there were people going, oh, and there were tears, and there were, it was excitement, and, and, and they started sharing. We have experienced this. We, our church was underground, underwater because of the flood and we had so much disaster and, and problems with the flood. But we have so many stories of how God met us in that and, and the peace that he gave us through that and how God is using it. And 
It, so I've never pronounced it any different than that. But I love Rick Renner's definition of peace. The tranquility of the soul that is unaffected by outward circumstances or pressures. I would say that's a great definition of safety. The tranquility of the soul that is unaffected by outward circumstances or pressures. We can be safe when we are in the presence of Jesus. If you had a child who was afraid of the dark, um, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, it's dark, and he's afraid, and he's crying, and he runs into your bedroom and climbs into bed with you, he's probably sleeping in a matter of minutes. My question then is, is it any less dark? No. The presence of the parent. The presence of the parent is something that gives the child a full sense of safety and protection. And I would suggest to you that's what the kind of safety we can always experience with Jesus. When I'm in his presence, it doesn't matter how dark it is or what the circumstances are because I am safe in his presence. Going back to this, the identity issue um, is, is the worst lies of the enemy because most of the lies that you have bought into are I statements. I am or you are statements. I am ugly. I am worthless. I am unlovable. You're a, you're a jerk. You're, you're this or you're that. We buy into those things, and because they, they feel real to us, we identify with them, and they feel very defining. And God's message, as he meets us in our wound, and as he speaks his truth, and we renounce the lies of the enemy, his message is, none of what has ever happened to you defines you. Your molestation, your rape, your... Uh, being rejected by your father, abandoned, none of that defines who you are. I'm your creator, and you're still who I made you to be. And so we are, we are restored to his identity, his reality. Corey Tenboom, who I mentioned earlier, um, used to say, the, the object of my greatest pain can become the source of my greatest blessing. She would never have chosen to go to a concentration camp, obviously. But once she had gone through that experience, she said later, I would not trade it for anything because in that experience, I experienced the love of God in a deeper way than I've ever known and the fellowship of other believers in a way that I've never known. And um, she spent the rest of her life after being released, going around the world, literally sharing her testimony of how God met her and experiencing his love and his presence in the midst of. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still, is one of her sayings. Uh, but what the enemy intended for evil, obviously God brought about much good. And I literally believe, as a result of her sharing her testimony all over, I literally believe there are thousands of people in heaven today because of what they heard and how they, how they heard her, her testimony of how she went through that experience with Jesus. Um, let me return to the, uh, the orphanage story. Um, are, we going till, are we going till 3? 3.30? 3.15, okay. We've got some time then. It's good. Um, 
as that as that young man was uh, the man at crossroads when he was doing heart prayer over his eight-year-old experience, as he prayed, he pictured Jesus walking up the front steps of the orphanage with him with his arm around him. And as they reached the front door, they stopped and, and this young, young boy just started pouring out his heart. Jesus, I'm so scared. I don't, know who, I don't know what's gonna happen to me. I feel so alone. I feel so unloved. I feel unwanted. And, and just poured out his heart, all the pain of what he was feeling, uh, so abandoned and so on. And um, Jesus just very compassionately listened and understood his pain and um, assured him that what, what was done to the least of these was done unto me. So I not only saw your pain, I experienced it with you. Um, but he, Jesus, um, uh, the, the young man said to Jesus, Jesus, am I unwanted? And Jesus smiled at him warmly and said, I've wanted you from the beginning of time. I chose you to be mine. I chose you to be holy and blameless before me in love. Um, I've wanted you from the beginning of time. You're very wanted, and just know this, I'm gonna be walking this out with you. You're not alone. I'm gonna, you're gonna see me through various experiences at this orphanage. And he did a series of heart prayers and saw Jesus really helping him in a lot of amazing ways. <clears throat> And by the time he left Crossroads, he said, I'm really excited to go back. He said, I'm excited because I now believe, I really believe that who I am is worth being. Who I am is worth knowing. Who I am is worth loving. I don't, I don't have to minister out of my persona anymore. Now I get to minister out of my heart because I want people to know who I am. It, it transformed his ministry um, so, many, so many stories of heart prayer that I could share with you. Um, let me just give you one that, that uh, um, I think is, is really amazing because it was this, this young lady who was at Crossroads, she was in her mid-30s, she was on her third marriage already <clears throat> because her history was when, when things would get rocky with, with her husband, she would just leave. Um, She didn't know how to love. And her story, <clears throat> when she, um, she was raised for about six or seven years by who she thought was her parents, but they turned out to be her aunt and uncle. Um, she, her mother had given her up at birth to them and, and uh, went to the United States. She was living in Central America somewhere be, be, with, her, with her aunt and uncle. Um, at seven, six or seven years old, her mother came back and wanted to take her back to the United States. And um, she said, the only reason I can think of why my mother would have wanted me back is so that she could have more welfare money because she never showed me any love. She was abusive. She punished severely for minor infractions. One of, one of her mother's favorite ways of punishing her was to make her strip naked and kneel down in the doorway of her bedroom with her, her hands up on the doorposts, and she could be there for 15 minutes, half hour, an hour. She would just dissociate and, and kind of lose herself in the bedspread kind of thing. And when she did heart prayer over that, she, she pictured Jesus coming down the hall and then kneeling down and covering her nakedness with her, her, his robe and just loving on her and, and she just spent 
this long period of time just soaking in the love of Jesus and um, Jesus, Jesus took the, the, the small atrophied heart that, that she pictured herself as having and she saw Jesus taking that out and replacing it with a brand new heart that was, that was bright and red and, and, and big and um, she just started experiencing love for the first time in that, in that environment. Um, and she got really excited. And um, she had a series of, of heart prayers. But one of the times that, she, that I remember her, um, she was in the kitchen with her mother. Um, and her mother was cooking on the stove. And, and uh, she did something that her mother didn't like. It wasn't, wasn't anything major. But whatever it was, her mom swung a frying pan, hit her over the head, and literally knocked her out cold. She had an out-of-body experience. Um, and she, could, she said, I literally remember seeing myself looking down from the ceiling and seeing my mother over the top of me yelling and screaming at me to get up. And uh, she met Jesus in that in-between place. And, and she was actually frustrated and angry with Jesus. She said, Jesus, why did you make me go back? You, you could so easily have taken me home and I wouldn't have had to go through all that abuse. And she was really kind of frustrated and angry with Jesus for a while. And Jesus just let her go, let her express her heart. And, and, um, and then when she was done, he just, again, comforted her and loved on her and said, I'm sending you back because I'm not done with you yet. I've got work for you to do, but just know this, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to be with you. We're going to go through this together. And she had other pictures of Jesus um, kind of standing between her and her mother and, and taking some of the abuse upon himself. <clears throat> and um, it really, as much as abuse as she had, she was so excited and felt so protected and safe in the, in the presence of Jesus. It was pretty amazing. Um, I think she's going to have a a ministry to abused young women that nobody else could have because of what she's gone through. But I, I could literally give you hundreds and hundreds of stories of, of people who have gone through crossroads and experienced um, healing from abortions, from, from uh, um, major rejections, from sexual sins. I mean, just run the gamut. And it's it's one of the biggest blessings I have as a therapist is to have a front row seat on what God's doing. And it's amazing. Let me just uh, work towards the finish line here. Acts 3.19 says, Repent and turn so that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshment may come from what? The presence of Jesus. Here's my own version of that. I, I like to do the Kuiper revised version. <laughs> Un, unpublished. Uh, repent, and the word repent literally means to reconsider. And I think it means to reconsider on the basis of what you were believing that isn't true. So often we teach about repentance as, I was doing this wrong behavior and I turned from that behavior to the right behavior. And that ultimately is the result of, but to me, I think it needs to go way deeper. I think we need to challenge the belief that's driving that behavior. And so 
reconsidering the false beliefs that you've believed in your situation and then turning to the truth that God's revealing so that your sins may be wiped out, which removes the barriers to your freedom in order that times of refreshing and renewal may come from the presence of Jesus, experiencing the power of his presence. The age-old question, where was God when it happened? So many people, where was God when, when, when that happened to me? Why wasn't he there? Well, he is there. The most profound answer to that question, where was God when? He is there now. Would you like to go back and revisit that situation and, and help him to get a truth, help let him give you a truth perspective on that situation so it no longer has power and control over you. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Here's my own version of that. The Lord your God is with you. He's present with you at all times. He's mighty to save, mighty to heal or deliver. He will take great delight in you. He loves who he made you to be, who he created you to be. He will quiet you with his love, which means he's going to make you feel safe and secure in him, and he will rejoice over you with singing. He celebrates who he made you to be. Um, <clears throat> Let me, let me share a verse out of um, Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Um, this is out of the, mes the message version of Jeremiah 31, 20. O Ephraim, my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure, every time I mention his name, my heart bursts in lo with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. Let me give you the, my own version that I want you to personalize for yourself. Oh, my dear, dear child, my child in whom I take great pleasure, every time I mention your name, my heart bursts with, with longing for you. Everything in me cries out for you. Softly and tenderly, I wait for you. For you. My encouragement is for you to be finding someone who can help you do heart prayer, um, and there's lots of names for it, healing prayer, um, listening prayer, um, Terry Wardle, my friend, calls it formational prayer. There's lots of terms for it, but um, asking Jesus, help me to challenge the lies and false beliefs I've bought in and free me up so I can experience your love and, and pleasure. <clears throat> I do have a handout that is about uh, doing, doing heart prayer. And it, uh, by the way, the handout that was on your chair, I have no idea what it is <laughs> and why it's here. <laughs> it says restoring <laughs> through heart prayer at the top. That's the only thing I know about. Um, but this, this is a, um, just a, it's not a step-by-step, -step, here's how you do it and just walk it out exactly this way. It's more about what's involved in. And so 
take it more as suggestive rather than definitive in that sense. On the back is um, an advertisement for the, the uh, marriage retreat that's a very limited, only six couples are gonna be a part of it. But that's in Oregon um, in the fall, in, in October. And um, if, you're, if you're from the Western region, it would be a great thing to attend. Um, it is really powerful. It's at a Wyndham retreat on the ocean in Seaside, Oregon. So it's, it's amazing. So every couple has a condo that they're living in. And, and uh, so anyway, you can read about that. And also I have copies of my book in the back there. And my book is, is, comes out of my own pain and my own journey of healing recovery over the years and, and all the 40 years of plus of counseling that I've done. Um, it's very practical and it, it addresses, the, to me, the five most important false beliefs that you need to challenge, that almost everybody has to challenge. And there's also the iceberg model of change, which is the basic structure paradigm that we use as part of this heart prayer paradigm. So let me just, let me just pass these out and, and uh, would you mind passing them out and I can just answer questions with somebody else? Oh, great, thank you. Um, let me just answer questions that people may have as we have a few more minutes. Not very many more minutes. <laughs> yes. The book does not have the heart prayer stuff in it. Um, that's, that's one of the teachings I do at, the, at Crossroads, but it's not in the book. Um, you would get, you would experience heart prayer in the marriage retreat if you came to that, for sure. Oh, are you really? That's awesome. Yes? So what's involved in uh, making an appointment in Colorado to come and see you? Okay. There's a, on the, on the back side of the heart prayer thing you just got um, is our website. So just call up and, and schedule a phone appointment. We have free assessment. Phone, phone call that we can talk about your situation and see if it's appropriate. Ron Paisman, thank you guys for your address. Oh, we love, we love Ron and Susan. Yeah, thanks. Other questions? Yes. Two questions. Do you do training on facilitating the TV training on how to pray with someone this way? What was that question? The question is about whether we do training for this and, and um, it could it could happen. We don't we don't formally do that at Crossroads. We just take people through it. But um, if there was enough interest, we could do a um, we could do a training of, of of working with people and helping them to to practice it and so on. So. Well, let me. I'm a, the the book in back is. You, you can buy them here. If you have cash or a check, you can buy them here. They're $14 instead of $16. Um, and if you need to use a credit card, you can go downstairs and get it there too. So there's lots of copies downstairs. There's also a box down there if, I, if the ones on the table are running out. So Other, I, pray with, I pray with people to do this kind of stuff just yeah. out of you know, ministering to them. But um, often when... Uh -huh. So, do you answer how do you address that? You know, 
I, 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 encourage, I encourage people not to be trying to analyze and figure out why did it happen, but Jesus, what do you want to show me? What, what do you want to do with it now? Yeah. Because you could, you could spend the rest of your life trying to figure out why. And sometimes God shows us where it fits in the, in the, in the picture, and sometimes he goes, trust me, it does fit, but I'm, this, you're not there yet. You're not ready to experience that. Yeah. So, but um, it's yeah, it's powerful though. Yeah, I'm sure you've experienced that. Yeah. Good. Other questions? Okay.